When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode uh, is, is special because we're going to be talking about stuff that I have intentionally avoided for years. Uh, so I'm going to look like a fool. It's going to be great. Uh, I'm excited for it. I have uh, with me Joe Schmid, and we're going to be looking at one of his uh, recent papers that was just uh, accepted into the journal Sophia, I believe. I'll ask him, but uh, I'm I'm excited to talk about it. We're going to be getting into uh, Arist- an Aristotelian proof, specifically uh, one by Edward Fazer. Um, and actually, it's going to get technical. It's going to get into one aspect of the of the first part of his two part argument. So it'll be wild. So uh, without further ado, let me just bring Joe in. Hey, man, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this. I've listened to some of your other things with, um, uh, what was it, Crisp and also Mullins and and other sorts of things. So I really enjoyed them. Nice, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. So uh, I wanted to plug your book uh, for several reasons. One, because it's it's good. Uh, The Majesty of Reason, A Short Guide to Critical Thinking in Philosophy. Uh, You can check that out on Amazon. Another reason is because it took me all afternoon, man. I just reorganized my office and I could not find it. I knew what it looked like and I had looked it over. And like, I don't know if you ever had this when you're looking for a book or you're looking for something you think you know where it is and you keep looking in the same spot. It makes you want to puke. It's like, yes. I'm going to be sick if I don't find this book. So I found it. So I'm glad we can plug that. Everyone go buy that book. It's 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 very reasonably priced on Amazon there. Yeah. Um, so boom. But uh, Joe, I wanted to get into a little bit of personal stuff with you before before we dive into the the technical stuff. Um, I just wanted to get your background. Like, you're studying philosophy. Are you, are you a master's student? I'm an undergrad. Okay, you're an undergrad student mm-hmm. in philosophy at Purdue, and uh, which is just even more amazing. I mean, age whatever, but it, it's amazing that, that you are that young and uh, doing what you're doing. How did you get into philosophy? Why did you want to study philosophy? Yeah, that's a really good question. So let's see. Well, I've always been really interested in discussions, debates, those sorts of things. And when I was younger, uh, I remember I got my like iPod touch or something. And that was like in the fifth or sixth grade or something. And I immediately got an Instagram and went on there and went on like platforms and other sorts of things to debate things that I was interested in. Um, uh, at the time, it was uh, like abortion or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just really interested in that and developing, you know, arguments and, and, and it was actually like, you know, respectful and other sorts of things. Like it was actually getting into the issues with people who I didn't really know, but you know, it's, it's all right. right. Uh, so I've always been interested in, in that kind of debate aspect sort of thing. And then 
uh, I also grew up going to a Catholic uh, private school, K through eight, as well as uh, high school. And so I've had like theology classes every single day. Okay. And so that kind of, you know, naturally gives an interest in philosophy of religion, these other sorts of things, like these ultimate questions. Yeah. And so come seventh grade, eighth-ish grade, well, seventh grade, uh, we start learning about evolution, and I was just captivated. I loved it. It was so fascinating. I was like, I looked at my hand, and I'm like, this is the product of hundreds of millions of years, Hmm. and it was just, uh, it was so beautiful, so interesting. Uh, And then around eighth or ninth grade, uh, well, actually, probably around ninth grade, you know, I started reflecting on the profound suffering and languishing uh, in in the evolutionary process, and I was just thinking, like, this is the very means, the very mechanism by which God brought about biological diversity in humans, Mm -hmm. and yet it's so fraught with um, atrocious and horrendous evil for for non for non moral patients. That is to say, animals who yeah. are just suffering and predation and languishing and parasitism, all that sort of stuff. So that really rocked my uh, my worldview, and uh, I've been just exploring the ultimate nature of reality ever since. So yeah, uh, yeah so in high school, you know, um, got in touch with some philosophers, emailed them back and forth, like Josh Rasmussen and others, and. Um, yeah, and now now I'm here. So uh, I've got that book, and I've got um, a number of papers published and other sorts of things. So uh, yeah, uh, exploring reality. Yeah, man. Well, uh, so the fact that you have uh, articles published in philosophy journals as an undergrad might be an apologetic for Catholic school itself. <laughs> yeah, so you might be <laughs> unintentionally. Uh, everyone's going to go put their kids in Catholic school. Be smart like you. Um, so so. That explains how you're into philosophy of religion already. Um, do do you consider yourself an agnostic right now? I do, yes. Uh, so, I mean, I, I break it. I break that term down in, in a number of different ways. I mean, one of them is like an in-principle agnostic. So you say mm-hmm. you cannot know in principle whether or not uh, God exists, say. Um, another one is just kind of epistemic agnostic, which is, hey, from the evidence that I've gathered, from the arguments that I've looked at, uh, from the papers and articles and books that I've read and videos that I've watched, uh, it seems to me that the evidence, uh, taking into consideration, you know, your priors and other sorts of things, it seems to me that the evidence is roughly counterbalanced between uh, the, the the major theories, naturalism and theism, say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an epistemic agnostic. That's what I fall into. And then finally, there's a kind of suspension agnostic where they just completely, they just don't even assign any probability assignment whatsoever. Um, and yeah, so I, I would fall in, into that kind of middle uh, epistemic agnostic range. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, do you have a favorite argument for God, and then maybe a favorite argument ag- against God? Ah, <laughs> uh, this is—it's such a good question. Um, so, like, favorite—I love. There are different ways to interpret that, right? Yep. So, it's like, mm-hmm. do, do I think it's? Are we using it as like most convincing to my mind, or or maybe it's like what I love to think about? Um, <laughs> so, I'll, I guess I'll answer both. I'll answer yeah, both because I'm yeah. excited. <laughs> so. My favorite one to think about is probably symmetry breakers for the modal ontological argument, that possibility mm-hmm. premise, right? Okay, so for listeners, the modal ontological argument, uh, essentially, <laughs> this is the simplest way to say it, possibly a necessarily existent perfect being exists, therefore a necessarily existent perfect being exists. That follows in system S5 uh, of, of modal logic. Uh, it's complicated, but it does. But there's a symmetrical argument, which is just possibly there is no. I'm not saying there is no, just possible. Possibly there is no necessary perfect being, in which case you can use S5 axiom to get that there actually is no uh, such necessary being. And so really the argument 
or much of the, the philosophical literature these days is focusing on ways that you can break that symmetry between these two possibility premises, the possibility that God does exist and the possibility that God doesn't exist. And uh, yeah, so that, that's, I'm, I love looking at those, thinking about those. Um, I've got a paper under review on, on one of them, and I, I've got some other papers in the works on other, uh, others proposed by other people. So I love thinking about that one. Uh, it's just so interesting because it's like it brings in modality. So like possible worlds necessary, all those sorts of things. It brings in epistemology, like how do we know that it's possible? How do we know that it's not possible? It brings in metaphysics because we're looking at like necessary existence, properties, these sorts of things. It brings in and philosophy of religion. So it brings in everything. I love it. Um, now, as for what I find most plausible, it would probably be something like um, just a basic kind of contingency argument uh, mm -hmm. that, that uh, Proust and Rasmussen uh, level, or maybe a modal um, contingency argument, where it's just like, uh, for any group of contingent beings, it's at least possible that they have some outside explanation. Then you look at the the, the fact that there are contingent beings as such, or the group of all contingent beings, uh, and if it's possible that that has an outside explanation, well, the, the outside explanation can't be in terms of one of those contingent beings, uh, in which case it's possible that there's a necessary being. Uh, and by S5, you can get that there actually is a necessary being. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's, and of course, I mean, I have some reservations about how you bridge that gap from necessary being to God, but um, that is, that is, that's probably the argument that I find perhaps most convincing by my lights. Um, and then as for most interesting argument against, um, I think an, it, one that I like thinking about is, is the one that I'm, I'm trying to like toy with. And it's like looking at the major models of God um, and saying each of them has problems and the problems are, are pretty big so as to justify uh, rejecting them all, really. Uh, and, and so it, it's, a weird, it's a weird argument, but it's, it's essentially like a disjunction. Like if theism is true, then either classical or neoclassical or panentheism or pantheism or open theism, but then you just go through and systematically reject each one on the basis of the variety of arguments that even those people within those camps level towards one another. Yeah. So it's like, that's an interesting one that I'm thinking about. Again, I'm not claiming that it succeeds or anything. I'm right. just, I'm, I'm trying to think about that one. It's kind it's of like, like a, a, it's like a meta, artic, meta yeah. argument. Yeah. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. Because you do have to get into the nitty gritty and like actually justify like why you think that open theism, for yeah. instance, is mistaken or other sorts of things. But and it's a little bit, it's a little, it's pulling in a little bit on some intuitions from like disagreement literature as well. Or you might Ooh, be. That's interesting. That. Yeah. I, th I think you you could that could actually compound it possibly. Um, so that would be a further consideration. But I I would, for how I would run it, I would try to keep it on like the metaphysical level. It's like okay, yeah, just just run the kind of metaphysical arguments against uh, each of the the positions and then uh, go from there. Now, um, so that's the one that I find most interesting. As to which one I find most plausible, it's probably just a Bayesian arg uh, evolutionary argument from evil, right? So I was kind of it's kind of sketching it earlier, but. Um, yeah. Just um, under theism, it seems extremely surprising by my mind that we would have these just this, this grueling, seemingly wasteful, long drawn out process of non-moral agents just ripping each other to shreds and suffering um, for, for genuinely hundreds of millions of years all around the globe. And like I try to contemplate my own life. That's just a century. Right. Um, and we're talking centuries upon centuries upon centuries upon millennia upon millennia it's just it's unfathomable mm -hmm. and so um it just seems to me that um that's much less surprising on a kind of view on which ultimate reality is indifferent to the suffering and languishing of of sentient creatures uh and so thereby provide a kind of bayesian evidence for that that view vis-a-vis -vis theism um so that's good man I, I love the way you broke it down into interesting and most plausible that's really interesting mm -hmm. uh 
That's a fun way to think about it. I'm going to probably think about those questions uh, in the future as well. Yeah, what about uh, you? What about you? Let's hear oh, you. Well, you're not going to like this. Nobody ever does. But I, <laughs> I like um, my my favorite is the transcendental argument for God. And you could say, well, well, which one, right? Like, yeah. Um, to me, it it seems like um, uh, I, I wrestled in college and I like to lift and stuff. So I'll, sometimes I'll use like meathead references and uh, – <laughs> The the tag to me is is a meta argument, and it's a style of arguing. And to me, it's like the safety rack where I can go so far on anti theistic arguments, but at some point I go, it. I do think you're borrowing from my worldview, and and it's the safety bar, and it lands. And maybe this guy's super smart because many people are way smarter than me, but thinking in in more of a worldview manner, and I think well, there's a lot of argument from different types of transcendental arguments from like philosophy of mind. And so the fact that I'm considering this, I, I think that my mind presupposes a necessary mind to, to make me, or um, one that I've been working on that I think is really interesting is, uh, is uh, the, the acquisition of concepts. And so the fact that I can it's think like Descartes. about Descartes. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I love, I love rational stuff. I love uh, abstract. That's, that's why I'm, I'm not into contingency stuff. Cause contingency and Bayesian reasoning is like, dude, it's, I just need to work through it. I need to get good at it, but we can go conceptual uh, necessity kind of stuff. That's fun. So um, I think probably my favorite is kind of, I consider it a transcendental argument uh, from, from concept uh, acquisition. So the fact that I have the concept of table, you know, I acquired that concept through uh, a teacher and it was my mom or dad. And they said, Parker, can you say table? Look, table. And they gave me the word and concept for table through this process of triangulation. So I like to follow Donald Davidson and his triangulation argument. And then someone taught them. So someone taught my mom. So we'll call her grandma. And then grandma learned that concept through a process of triangulation. And so then now it gets in. This is why I want to learn in uh, contingency and and, uh, infinite regress because either – I, I think there's a trilemma of a infinite regress of finite minds triangulating with each other to pass down concepts, or you got concepts and speech from non-concepts and non-speech, which I think there's this thing, the, the aspect problem, I think is a big problem for acquiring concepts from non-concepts because you don't know what aspect you're talking about unless you have language, or there's a necessary mind who began the process of triangulation with a finite mind. Um, that's the one I think... So, so if that if that were sound, then this necessary mind would be the the precondition of my thought about tables. I do have thoughts about tables, so that that's probably my favorite and uh, most interesting. I think um, for for against um, sometimes uh, the size of the universe, and and it's it's sometimes it's the size of the universe, where it's just like, dude, there's so much here. And there's kind of some evangelifish type answers where it's like, uh, no, maybe maybe Adam and Eve were supposed to teleport to different worlds before the fall. And it's like, dude, that's not a good answer. Um, so there's there's uh, the size, which for most people, it's not a problem at all. But if I'm being honest and thinking like, ooh, I don't know. Pascal says, you know, we're the perfect size because we're the, right in between the grand scale of the universe and the micro, uh, you know, sub subatomic. I don't know if that's actually true. I haven't done <laughs> any work yeah. to see if that's the case, but yeah, I think I was not expecting you to turn that answer back on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I just I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, 
So if anyone's listening, don't steal that argument from me. I've been working on that one. Uh, that's <laughs> mine. I have it. Don't don't jack that. It's I have a, a paper under review that Lord willing, nice will get accepted. So um, is it a, a philosophy or a theology journal? It is a it's a journal uh, or philosophical theology. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of weird. It's kind of a literary journal. Oh, okay. uh, it's it's about um, C.S. Lewis and uh, the Inklings, and so I'm trying to advance uh, and. I'm trying to bring together uh, Van Til's transcendental argument with C.S. Lewis's argument from reason. So I thought that'd be a nice place to put it. Plus, if they accept, then I can teach a, a course on C.S. Lewis and say, look, I have an article <laughs> yeah. published here. You want to let's, <laughs> let's teach that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, but OK, man, getting back to you, you know, I, I want to get off the, the hot seat here out of the hot seat. Um, I want to talk about this article that you sent me. Uh, it's it, I believe it's called stage one of the Aristotelian proof, a critical appraisal. Is that right? That, yes, that is a type. Okay. And you're looking at uh, step one or phase one, stage one of uh, Edward Fazer's Aristotelian proof from his five proofs for the existence of God. Now, so for me, I'm going with the Augustine, Augustinian uh, proof. Like that's me. That's where I live. I love <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I skipped the first chapter even. I read some of it, but you're making me go back to it. So um, can you lay out like what is the, what is Phaser's conception of the Aristotelian proof. Do you, do you have that in mind? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's good. So I guess we should, you know, set a set some, or I guess some preliminaries first, right? Yeah. So um, Phaser is after a kind of demonstration. So that's a kind of deductive argument based on metaphysical first principles. Um, that at least to him, he gives some indication that. Uh, that upon reflection, you can gain a kind of certainty on such principles. And so, so it's, it's a very audacious task, uh, as you can imagine. And it's broken down, as he said, into two stages, stage one and stage two. So stage one of all of his arguments, try to get to some kind of explanation of some general feature of reality, be it change or changeable beings uh, in the first proof. The second proof, it would be composite beings. Uh, the third proof, it would be abstracta. Uh, the fourth proof, it would be essence, existence, composites. And then the fifth proof, it would be contingent things. <laughs> so he's trying to get to some kind of ultimate ground of those things. Yeah. And then the second stage, uh, he's trying to unpack what such a being would be like or what such a ground would be like. And he argues that it has various divine attributes, uh, particularly of the classical theistic God. And so... Um, there are different models of God. Classical theism is, is one of them. It has, of course, it says that God's omniscient, omnipotent, ase, essentially morally perfect and whatnot. But it also has four kind of core theses. So simplicity, which is just saying that all that is in God is God. Um, timelessness, which is saying that there is no succession in God's life. He exists outside of time. Uh, he doesn't have temporal duration or extent or whatever. Uh, thirdly, immutability. So uh, he's unchangeable. He has no potential to become something else, and he also has no potential to be cross-world variant. And then uh, finally, uh, fourthly, is impassibility. So he cannot be causally affected in any way, shape, or form. He does not suffer, and he only exists in a, a kind of perfect, undisturbable state of blessedness, bliss, and happiness. So that's the conception of God that, that he's trying to get at. And um, I guess one final preliminary thing uh, is that uh, I actually have, uh, I finished, so I, I made this known on my blog, uh, and I'm going to release, I'm going to make it known in a video as well, but I actually finished um, a book, man, or like a research monograph or book manuscript on 
um, systematically going through each of his proofs, uh, both stage one and stage two, and uh, addressing them because I just think that's a lacuna in the literature that hasn't really been done. And so uh, it's like 104,000 words, and I'm developing, um, I'm developing some new arguments uh, against classical theism uh, based on abstracta, for instance. So there's this book, as you know, like two dozen or so arguments against God, or no, two ar- two dozen or so arguments for God. And uh, and in there, they have some really interesting arguments for abstracta. And what I what I'm developing is I, I think that you can actually use those arguments that like Tyrone Goldschmidt and Lorraine Keller and others had developed in there and like Christopher Menzel, I think and you could use those actually against classical theism as well as a lot of other stuff from abstracta and explaining differences across worlds and, and lots of other really cool stuff. So, um, yeah, I just I just wanted to have that as a preliminary just to, to keep that on people's radar. So, well, Joe, you, you dude, you piqued my interest here. I, I just want to just really quick. Um, do you do you go from abstracta to saying that God must have parts then, if if uh, the abstracta exists in his mind, or are you going so a different direction? It depends. It depends okay. on uh, which argument we're thinking of. So, um, Menzel, for instance, he talks about the contingency of the set theoretic hierarchy. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's only contingently as high as it is, and he says that a kind of Theistic intellectual activism can provide a good explanation of that, whereas um, non-theistic set theoretic realism can't. Uh, and I, I argue that um, under classical theism, you're not going to be able to have that kind of contingent intellective activity because um, all of God's activity is metaphysically necessary and whatnot. Um, uh, because everything about God is is metaphysically necessary under under classical theism. There's no, no contingency in God. Just for listeners, there's no contingency in God. There's no actuality. Uh, there's no potentiality in this con- con- uh, classical conception of God. Yeah. pure act. Pure so act. That would be, everything that would be is a problem necessary. for classical yeah. theism. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I I think that even Chris Menzel's argument, I believe he's the one who who gets the set argument. Um, I could be mixing that up, but uh, uh, but. And, and, and so I think that that would also, and, and like Lauren Keller, she argues for um, multiple propositions that exist w- within an intellect. And so it seems to me that this kind of multiplicity, this multiplicity of what's called positive ontological items, that is to say anything that has any kind of being or existence or positive reality. Um, if we have this multiplicity of positive ontological items within God, well, then it's false that all that is in God is God because we have these uh, distinct uh, propositions, say, or distinct uh, concepts or, or whatever. Um uh, I mean, William W. Matthews Grant, it, it, so many authors are like, whatever is intrinsic to God is God. If that were false, as Stephen Dewey and, and James Dolezal point out, like, if that were false, then there would be something that is not God. There would be something that is distinct from God, without which God wouldn't exist. He, so he'd in some sense be dependent on something. And so the strong doctrine of essay leads them to say, no, all that is in God is God. But if you've got these multiple propositions, <laughs> which, which are in God, then it's false that all that is in God is God. Because uh, you have this uh, kind of real multiplicity within within God. Now there are lots of distinctions and other sorts of things that you can draw there, um, and that that is different from the kind of contingency of the set theoretic hierarchy that I was pointing out. I just leveled kind of two different considerations. That's, man, that's really interesting. And and that that actual the second argument you're you're talking about uh, with uh, Lorraine, I forgot her last name. Lorraine uh, Keller. Yeah, Keller. Yeah, I think she, I think it's like one of the, one of the first arguments in the book. Um, but but that one is one that is kind of got me teetering on simplicity where I'm like, how do I make sense of it? Because I love that argument. I really like that. It's it's similar to uh, the Augustinian proof. It's it's similar to Anderson and Welty. I, so far, what I've heard is that, well, uh, the propositions exist in God's mind eternally, but they're thoughts and thoughts are like actions. And so um, classical theists believe that God can act. Some do. Uh, 
depending on what we mean by act. And so if he can act and we can make sense of his action, then we can make sense of his thoughts as actions. And so that's a whole thing I'm into. We don't have to talk about that anymore, but that's really interesting that you picked up on that one as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, yeah, there's so many fun avenues, uh, that abstract a chapter. Um, and yeah, anyway, so, uh, getting back to, so yeah, I just wanted to to make, I guess the audience aware of the, the book. Well, it's, it's relevant because we're setting the stage really. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I just want to make people aware of that, that book project. Um, and of course, you know, like papers themselves take many, many months to get in review. So like book will be take even longer. So people don't get your hopes up for anything anytime soon. <laughs> so, so I just, I just wanted to tell people that. So uh, do not message me and be act, ask about it. Like, wait, let's wait like a year and a half or something, or maybe even longer, actually longer. Yes. So uh, back to the, back to the proof. So we talked about the demonstration. We talked about his conception of God uh, and whatnot. And now I think we could probably, um, probably set it out. So it relies on the distinction between act and potency. Uh, and so act and potency for uh, analogical conception of being, where being is said in different ways. Uh, many people, many philosophers, probably most contemporary philosophers are going to hop off at this stage. They're going to say, no, this argument relies on an analogical conception of being. And no, being is univocal. You know, like you read your Van Inwagen and you're like, yeah, being is univocal. <laughs> but we can set that aside. So, um, you know, I'm willing to grant, well, for this dialectical context, I grant Phaser. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, we can say we could say that being is univocal or analogical or whatever. Uh, and so potency just refers essentially to basically unrealized possibility, but it's, it's, it's kind of like a capacity for being, it's like determinable. It's like, um, unfulfilled, right. Um, not, not, not determinate and not complete really. And whereas actuality would be, um, determinate being like fully, fully realized, not an unrealized possibility, but a kind of fully realized, actual, complete, definite, determinate being. Um, and so, so he gets this distinction, and then he analyzes change. So one thing going from one thing to another, uh, he analyzes that as the actualization of the potential. Uh, but then he says that, well, uh, we know that change is a feature of reality, right? Look around. Um, I'm hearing birds chirp right now. That's obviously some change. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so change is a real feature of reality. And, uh, but the thing is, changes presuppose the substances that undergo the changes, right? So you can't just have like a, a change out there with no substances that are changing, that are like changing, that undergoing it. So it's a kind of substance first ontology. Uh, again, some people are going to hop off at that stage. Nope, it's like an event first ontology or other sorts of things. Um, but I, I, I grant him a substance first ontology in this context. So I'm, I'll go along with it. Um, and so we got these substances that under, are undergoing change. And what he wants to say is that this act potency analysis of change doesn't only apply to uh, changes, but it also applies to the very being of these substances that are undergoing the changes. And so he says that uh, these substances have various <laughs> potentials, uh, but they also have potential to exist right here and right now. And for him, uh, this, this potential is going to need to be actualized. Uh, we, we, you know, we need some explanation as to why it's actual instead of say not actual or, or what have you. And so we have actualizations of potentials, even right here, right now concerning, uh, the, the, the substances that we're talking about. And so what he says is like right here, right now, we've got these concurrent actualizations of potentials going into deeper, more fundamental layers of reality. Uh, and the question is, can this, can this chain be infinite, right? It's, it's a kind of what he calls a hierarchical chain or a per se chain. Uh, and it's just a chain wherein uh, each member exists only in so far as it is actualized by the, the previous members. Uh, 
or it derives the relevant property or feature or causal causal power from all previous members. It, it exists in kind of instrumental or wholly derivative manner. Um, and so uh, what he argues is that because we have this kind of hierarchical chain at any given moment, uh, and because hierarchical chains can't be infinite, that's what he's, he wants to argue, it follows that there is some first member of, of that chain. And that, that thing cannot itself be subject to change because uh, we, according to Phaser, any of those substances which are subject to change, is, they are such that their potentiality for being requires being actualized. And so this thing can't be subject to change because it's an unactualized first being. And so if it's not subject to change, so he argues it's purely actual, and boom, purely actual, unactualized actualizer, uh, essentially. So, um, yeah, and I mean, that moves, and, th and that would be the, the conclusion of the first part of the argument, which he then yeah. goes on to say, and this unactualized actualizer we call God. Yeah, yeah, and he goes to give a various um, inferences. Uh, I actually have a paper under review on, on stage two um, of the Aristotelian proof, okay. because I also don't think that his inferences there succeed, but we can, you know, we don't have to get into that because that would take us way too far afield. <laughs> We've got enough on our hands. That's so I guess right. I, I do, I do want to quickly, just before I turn it over to you, I do want to quickly say something about that, um, the, the debarring of infinite per se chains or something. So, uh, the way I like to imagine it, or at least convince people of its intuitive plausibility, um, is that, uh, suppose that, um, you, Parker, owe me $10. Okay. And so I'm, I'm over here like pay up. <laughs> and so I crack my knuckles and like pay up and you're like, well, here's an IOU. <laughs> I, I have it from like Sandy or Susan or whatever. So I'm going to go and ask Susan. So this is you. You're going to ask Susan and you're like, hey, Susan, I need $10 because Joe's asking and he cracked his knuckles and he's really frightening. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so Susan or whatever, she's like, okay, well, I don't have the $10, but here's an IOU. Uh, I'm going to go get it from like, I don't know, grant or something so so she goes to grant and then the same thing happens ad infinitum i'm never going to get my money here i think that's pretty obvious it's just an infinite chain of borrowing it's an infinite chain of ious there's there we don't have a kind of ground or explanation of how i even could have this this money in the first place if no one has that money built into themselves like has the money of themselves to give it to someone else then i'm never actually going to get the money and so I don't actually really have $10 after all. Um, I'm just my poor $0 self. So, um, so uh, essentially, uh, you can't have this just infinite chain of sheer borrowings or derivations from without. Uh, you have to, that has to bottom out somehow in something that has the relevant causal power or feature or whatever of itself that it can bestow to others. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the intuitive way to spell it out. Um, uh, that that denial of an infinite regress. So in my paper, I actually grant Phaser as well that you can't have infinite regresses of per se chains. I think you know there might be ways that you can question that, but um, again, I, I don't really take a stance on it. I mean, I find it reasonably intuitive for the reason that I just I gave, but I don't even touch that in my paper. So um, yeah, but, but yeah, uh, that, that's stage one. Okay, that is interesting. I was going to ask you uh, what you do think about infinite regresses. Uh, do you think maybe not all infinite regresses are, are made equal? Are there, are there some that are, that are possible, you think? Sorry, it's just a tangent question here. No, that's such a good question. So <laughs> this gets into the question of causal finitism. Um, uh, right, so, so, so Phaser distinguishes between per se chains, which are kind of like hierarchical. It's where you yeah. have a derivative thing. But mm -hmm. there are also per accidents chains, which um, each member in that chain actually has the causal power or property of itself. It doesn't like wholly derive it from another, um, but they can nevertheless like cause one another to say exist or come into being or, or have that relevant causal power. I always think it's of like, like, I always think of like temporal versus like foundational, right? right? So yes, it's like yeah. going backwards versus going down. 
Yes, that's an excellent way to think about it. Like fundamentality, it's kind of like a chain of fundamentality for the mm -hmm. Paris A chain, whereas the per accidents ones is kind of like linearly ordered in time. Yeah. Uh, so that'd be like a father causes his son to exist, and then the son doesn't need the father to exist in order to exercise his, his causal power to, to beget another son. And yeah. so in that sense, the son kind of possesses the causal power of himself. He doesn't derive it from without. Whereas in the case of the money, right, I didn't have it. Like each of the individual members didn't have it of themselves. They had to derive it like from, from all previous members. So... Um, uh, as for per accidents chains, I don't know whether or not they, they could be infinite. I actually have a paper on causal finitism under review right now, and um, <laughs> I, I present some interesting new paradoxes that Proust doesn't consider, because uh, Proust is like the big contemporary defender of causal finitism. Um, I present some interesting paradoxes that he doesn't consider, and I argue that causal finitism is the best solution uh, to, to those paradoxes. Um, now, uh, that's a paper where I'm just kind of exploring causal finitism. That's not to say that I agree with it. You know, like a lot of philosophers, they write papers that they don't necessarily agree with, right? They're just mm -hmm. exploring something. So I think causal finitism is respectable. Uh, I don't full-blown accept it right now. I don't full-blown reject it. I'm kind of agnostic on it. Um, so I, I don't quite know whether or not there could be <laughs> infinite causal chains, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, at least like pair accidents ones. Um, now, in the case of the IOU, I, I think that that's a vicious regress. So I, I do think that that couldn't happen. Um, uh, yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, that's good to, to know that you even distinguish the two and, and see a different, uh, yeah, you have different priors or whatever on, on the different ones. So again, that's pair accidents, and that would be the chain going backwards in time. For me, that's what the argument I, I brought up earlier uh, about the, the uh, triangulation going back that would be yeah. a pair accidents yeah. because it's going back in time and then once you have the concept it's yours uh you don't you yeah. can pass it on but then uh i i forgot the the uh foundational it's pair uh what, what was that one called uh well we can call it whatever pair say hierarchical yeah hierarchical is really really helpful um this one is interesting so this is the argument that that phaser is arguing in his proof right yeah yeah and and so he, he uses water and he talks about uh you know, what keeps, what concurrently keeps the water in existence uh, at any given moment. And so I wonder, is time what's doing the work for him there? That like each moment it has to be continually upheld. It has to continually be actualized. Um, is, is that what he's doing there? Is it, is it time doing that? So that's a good question. So yes and no. Uh, so te for temporal things that exist in time, that is doing some work. Like it's at every single moment at which right. they exist. They could not exist for a single moment without being upheld by that more fundamental kind of actualizer. Mm -hmm. So it, it does, it is important for temporal beings, but he's also going to want to say that, well, suppose that there were a timeless being like an angel, which nevertheless had some potential. So it might not be a potential to... Okay, people, don't don't say that like, oh, angels are in time or they're in semp eternity. Like, okay, calm down. We're, let's call it a shmangel. Okay, yeah, it's in, it's right. in, it's timeless. That's good. Okay? So um, we got this timeless non-god being. Uh, it's going to have some potential. Maybe it's not a potential to like change uh, in the actual world because then it might actually be in time. But right. it, it could be a cross-world potential, right? So it it could be different across worlds, just not like changing in the actual world. So that would be a kind of potential. Yeah. So. Um, Phaser wants to say that even this kind of being would require sustenance. It would require a more fundamental member to bestow it actuality, to mm -hmm. give it actuality, to keep it in existence, or to at least cause it timelessly, at least. And so time it isn't technically essential. He wants to say it's the very fact of being an act potency composite being, the very fact of having some potential or other. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, no, that's a good question.
Okay. So, uh, and I think what we're, I think this is one of your arguments. Uh, I think I pulled it out. Causal, the causal keeper, the one that, that's keeping this water, um, you know, concurrently keeping this water in existence at each given moment, uh, this causal keeper or sustainer, it's only needed uh, if the water is presently transitioning from potency to act. Okay. And so like, if you do have this water already, uh, phaser is going to say, well, yeah, you had it at this moment. That's fine. But the next moment, it still needs an actualizer, a, a sustainer in order to exist in that moment and the next moment and the next. And you're saying that's only if it's not uh, being actualized already. So it's not, so it's not water. So it like goes back to something less than water in this moment. It has to be turned in again. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but could you, could you flesh yeah, that, that off for that's us? That's really close. That's, that's close. So, um, right. So the causal principle roughly that Phaser wants to use is something like, um, Whenever is something, whenever a potential is actualized, that is to say, whenever a potential transitions from potency to act or becomes actual or reduces from potency to act, uh, there is some actual thing that causes that. Uh, and so in order to justify this demand for a concurrent sustaining cause of things, uh, of something like water, say, it, on the basis of that principle, right, he would have to show that the water does indeed have a potential for existence at any given moment, which is... So reducing is reducing from potential to actual is uh, transition. So transitioning because the causal principle again says if there's a reduction from potency to act or transition from potency to act or a potential is being actualized, then there's a cause. And so we can only facilitate that inference to having a, a hierarchical sustaining cause if we can indeed show that uh, the, the very being of the water at any given singular moment at which it exists is such that it is that kind of like reducing from potential to actual. Mm -hmm. um, and what I want to say is like Phaser has simply not justified that. Uh, why think that? Uh, why, why can't it instead simply be actual, possibly be, let's say, different, or possibly maybe not even exist, but it's not the case that there's this kind of potential that's going from potential to actual or something like that at every any given moment at which it exists or some kind of like reduction from potency to act or what have you. Uh, it's just, um, it's kind of like actual simpliciter. It's, it's not an actuality that consists in a reduction from potency to act. So uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of what, and I, I flesh this out in greater detail in the paper, and it's hard to explain without actually like writing it out, but... It is super hard. And I, I always uh, like to remind the, the listeners here, like this is a conversation and we're getting we're getting into stuff, but we're talking about it. And it's much harder than putting it in propositions, even though that's pretty hard, too. I mean, you read the paper and it's it's difficult, but it's it's much diff much. It's different. It's different talking about it. We're going to be able to talk about different things. We're going to help uh, intuitions maybe a little bit more in this conversation than we would by, you know, pro uh, proposition after proposition proving it. But to me. It, it your position seems so reasonable. It it doesn't seem like water is reducing out of a position of actuality back to potentiality at every moment that it needs to be reactualized or anything like that. Maybe I'm just not getting what he's saying still. Yeah. So there is a kind of ambiguity there, and that's what it it, it makes it difficult because what, you know when I'm when I was writing this paper, it's it's difficult to see exactly what Phaser is trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, it, at, at some points, it sounds like he might be saying something along the lines of, um, well, I don't mean that it's reducing or transitioning from potential to actual. I just mean that it's actual, but it like could be otherwise. And so we need an explanation of why it is actually this way. And that explanation would have to be in terms of something actual that's more fundamental. So in some sometimes he talks that way. 
but other times when he's when he's leveling his causal principle that whatever reduces from potency to act requires an actualizer right in that whole chapter he dedicates he talks about uh, oh whenever there's a whenever a potency becomes actual there needs to be something that causes that and he goes through all these examples of potencies becoming actual and, and so on um, so it, it, he seems he seems to need that kind of uh, transition from potency to act because of the causal principle that he uses. And so that, that's really what I latch onto in, in my paper. And I just say, I just don't find that that plausible. Um, and yeah, so. Well, I, I think I, I think I, I like his point maybe about moving from reducing down from potency to act, but it seems like once you're in act, why would it need to reduce or why would it need to go back up to potency? But what you, would you just help me see is, okay. So maybe if he's saying that, uh, Something has to. Uh, there needs to be a causal keeper that keeps it in in act, that that keeps it from. He says reduce down from potentiality to actuality, and I always want to go actualities up here, and it reduces down. It just <laughs> yeah, makes more yeah. sense to me that way. But something to, to a causal keeper that keeps it in act and keeps it from moving out of act into potentiality or out of being or something, that makes a little bit more sense to me. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well. I mean, I do think that makes a little bit more 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 sense, but I still, <laughs> right? I'm still thinking like, why? Like, <laughs> give me the reason, right? Like, why would it? Why why would it suddenly revert back to like non-being, as it were, or something like that? You know, like why would it absent some kind of causal keeper? It's like why? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. it seems. I don't know. I mean, if you just have a particle existing in empty space, say, and, and there's nothing that's there to destroy it, and there's nothing that's uh, trying to pull it apart or anything like that. Um, does seem kind of intuitive that it's just going to remain there. That's a form of stasis. Yeah. Is this your? Is this the the idea of um, existential inertia? Yeah. So it, it bleeds into that, right? So yeah. uh, I guess what we were just talking about is we were looking at Phaser's justification for uh, demanding a kind of sustaining cause of things like water, right? And right. So what I was all I wanted to say there is just like, listen, you haven't sufficiently justified that because in order to apply your causal principle, you would have to say that it's like reducing from potency to act but we haven't been given sufficient reason to think that that is indeed the case. So that's that's separate from existential inertia. But now, uh, if he wants to ask a kind of, well, give me your account, Joe. Right. Like, right. how like how do you think this is going? Um, uh, or at least give me some other account. Uh, the first thing that I'd say to that, like, that say, it's like, okay, well, I can give you my account, but keep in mind that the onus of justification in this dialectical context is on you. I don't, strictly speaking, need to offer an account. Um, after all, you're the one who's giving a positive argument, give, trying to give me a demonstration of something. Um, I don't need to offer some kind of alternative positive account in this dialectical context. So that's, that's one thing that I, I want to say. And again, I'm not saying that like Phaser is saying, Joe, give me your account. Like I'm just right, right. saying just, if someone came yeah. along, like yeah. if Fred came along and was like, oh, well, Joe, you give me your account. Like, so I'm saying why Fred is wrong. Right. Um, right. That's pretty much what I did here because I brought up an existential, <laughs> but I just saw how, the, how it connects where you could say, well, I think I've poked holes in yours and I'm not left in limbo because I have an account of, of what I think yeah. of this. Yeah. So, so yeah, now we're getting into the kind of existential nurse thing. So it's like, if someone asks me for my positive account, well, I'm going to, well, one thing I might say is that, um, I might just say I'm remaining agnostic on it. Um, I just, in my papers, I try to defend the co in my papers and my blog posts and whatnot. I try just to defend the rational defensibility of existential inertia and the coherence of it. Um, uh, I mean, I lean towards thinking that there's some necessary foundation of reality that's temporal. Uh, and so that would be a kind of existential inertialist view. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, people think that I'm like wedded to thinking that like contingent things inertially persist, but, uh, 
I'm really not. I just I think that's a rationally defensible view, and so I'll, I'll defend its rational defensibility against against people who say that it's not. Um, but uh, anyway, if if I were to be forced to offer a positive account, I would give something along the lines of existential inertia, uh, where uh, there's just this kind of well, think of it like mechanical inertia, right? So um, an object that is you know uniformly moving and in, in it's like rectilinear motion or whatever so long as there's no net force acting on it it'll simply persist it'll simply you know remain retain that uniform state of stasis as it were um now plausibly i think that we could just extend that to existence right uh once you bring in the water into existence say or uh, something else then so long as there aren't like factors that are actively trying to like the, like the net forces, but this is an anal- analogous to existence. So long as there aren't like forces that are actively trying to destroy it or something like that, whether internal or external to the thing, um, well, then it seems plausible that it's just a, it's just going to persist. It, that's a, it's a form of stasis. It's a maintenance of a state of actuality. Um, indeed, any disruption from that would almost seem inexplicable, right? Like why? Why would it disrupt if it didn't have something that that would like we're bringing it out of existence? Then like if it suddenly reverted, that would almost seem like um, that would seem to like be an inexplicable occurrence, it seems. Yeah. So, so intuitively, I want to say, well, okay, I want to go with phaser because it matches my theology better because I, I, uh, I believe in preservation. You know, I'm a Christian theist and I want to do that. Yeah. But I could see if someone were, were reasoning, if that's not a great reason to do it. I mean, theology is a great reason, but uh, not to approve someone's argument because I want his conclusion to be right. Yeah. Um, but, you might say, uh, if you were reasoning about this, uh, if you were reasoning about uh, existential inertia and and God's involvement in it, and you might say, well, no, no, God has to sustain things mm-hmm. in their being. You might you might pull a, uh, um, I just forgot the word, a uh, perfect per, per, oh. <laughs> per, perfect being uh, theology. Uh, you you might use that intuition pump and say, well. I can conceive of a being who could create things with existential inertia, and that would be a greater being than one who had to continually uphold it in its existence. It's interesting. And I, and I don't like that one either, but I, I think you could do that, right? You could just toss that out and say, as long as we're reasoning this way, boom, you know, here we go. Yeah, that is interesting. So, like, one thing that I do want to say, and I, I just want to affirm this, is, like, right, there are so many different ways someone could be justified either in accepting or rejecting existential inertia that don't have to do with, like, the Aristotelian proof or anything Fraser says, right? Like, um, someone could easily, for instance, have a religious experience on the basis of that, accept the Bible, say, and then on the basis of the Bible, say, they think that it says that God conserves things in being and then accepts that God conserves things in being. That's fine by me. That's perfectly fine. If you want to reject existential inertia like that, I think you could be well within your epistemic rights in doing that. That's fine. Mm uh, so again, there are so many different ways that one could be justified either way. Um, mm. and I want to, I just want to affirm that, right? Like, I, I'm not saying that, um, uh, you know, like there's no, there's no possible reason against existential inertia or something like that. Right. Uh, and I also want to say for existential inertia, uh, that it's perfectly compatible with, um, uh, the Bible and, and Christianity and other sorts of things. Why is that? Well, because existential inertia only says, and this is what I emphasize in my book so much and, and papers that I have under review, it only says that temporal concrete objects or some subset thereof persist in existence in the absence of kind of, you know, sustaining cause and destruction. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, so it could be quarks or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. But also, if God is in time, if God is in time, then God could sustain everything else. 
but God would be the being that is a temporal concrete object that persists in existence without a sustaining cause and without being destroyed. So we have all those things. And so some subset of concrete, temporal concrete objects persist in existence uh, without, and so that would satisfy existential inertia. Even as so God would be in time, he would be the one who persists, persists inertially and, uh, and everything else would be dependent upon God's conserving activity. And so in that sense, it's perfectly compatible with very traditional, well, I don't want to say very traditional because it denies timelessness, but uh, with like, with biblical Christianity and, and really everything. Um, so, yeah. I never thought about that. That's so interesting that, yeah, it would, you just need one thing. It'd be God to satisfy that condition. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to think about that some more. Um, yeah. The whole God and time one is another one that's kind of ripping my head apart right now. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. Well, and, and I mean, it's, it's just, you said quark. So that, that points to something which is like in the, the existential inertia literature. Uh, it's like, you can, you could, I guess, possibly say that like literally everything persists inertially, but that'd be like really weird. Mm-hmm. Like some some objects, like you can imagine an object which is like you know those magnets where they're like repelling each other like automatically. You know, yeah. um, you could imagine someone thinking that um, that composes an object when you have all those magnets together. Maybe it's some weird kind of natural object we can imagine that composes the, some object. The magnet thing, like the ball of magnetic force, or something. Yeah, like maybe you just found it in nature or something, and it's like huh. it's all, and the, the, they're all they're all like they're all like repelling each other. Yeah. And so the only way that you could have the object, if they're all together in some way, suppose that that's the object, the only way you could have it is if, some, if something clamps it around and like holds it there. Yeah. So in that case, this thing does need a sustaining cause. And that mm-hmm. seems obviously like possible, right? I mean, that seems obviously possible. So I think it'd just be crazy to say that like, like no matter what, absolutely everything is. Oh yeah. Okay. I, got, I see what you're, yeah, yeah. That's a great, yeah. Counter example to yeah. everything uh, being, Ex- existentially in- inert yeah yeah well yeah. and and i mean some people i mean i'm i'm kind of skeptical of this but but some people think that like macroscopic physical organisms have a variety of like external conditions that need to be in place in order for them to exist now arguably I, i've argued that that's actually going to bottom out in their dependence on parts of them so mm-hmm. like I, I do depend on the cellular respiration of my cells and so on no right. one denies that right the question is whether i have an outside sustaining cause not whether yeah. not whether i depend on parts no one denies that things Mm-hmm. in some sense depend on their parts so so my point in saying all this is just that um existential inertialists uh, have long been aware that you don't you don't need to say um like everything absolutely everything it could just be like the foundational feature or the foundational layer of reality it could be quarks say um or it could be a quantum field say it could yeah. be the neoclassical like some kind of some kind of uh, temporal god say um or whatever so um yeah i i you kept on you talked about uh like microscopic or subatomic uh um animals or whatever um organisms there's like this little bear thing i, I forgot what it's yeah, called you know what, I'm about? What, what what's the bear name for it though oh well, i just thought like, it was called a tardigrade <laughs> it, it, there's something it's like a sea bear or something like that and it looked it's like this tiny 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 little thing and it's supposed to be able to you know it's like the new cockroach where it can uh survive that anything is a tardigrade, yes. okay okay so i'm gonna look up the like the slang name for it the the uh, folk level name for it <laughs> it's something like a sea bear or something i'm like oh that's it that that thing has existential like <laughs> right? that, that's what that's what this uh on the folk level, people tell us they're indestructible and they may never die and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I mean, yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting example. Um, I mean, people should note that, of course, like existentially inertially persistent things don't need to be indestructible just for the right, audience. Right, 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 right. Like something could come along and bash it out of existence. And yeah. That would be fine. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a great point. Um, okay. So I wanted to, to close on um, 
per se chains and uh, like the the example I don't know if it's a phaser's example or and you're using a counter example but lunar illumination like the the fact that the the moon is lit up yep that was my reviewers example okay nice oh okay i i looked at i looked it up on google while you were speaking sorry they're called water bears water bears yes <laughs> or sometimes sometimes they're called moss piglets okay i like that one so water bears is is what you what you said you said like their scientific name maybe yeah, tardigrade. That's tardigrade. That sounds pretty epic too. That might be uh, Greek or something. Tardigrade. Yeah. Well, uh, their scientific name. It's their scientific name. I mean, I I just know it from the show Cosmos. Uh, okay. From Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay. Yeah. Water bears. Nice. <laughs> All right. I love it. Um, we're gonna have to title it like "Water Bears and Existential Inertia" or some why why water bears are a counterexample for phaser or something. Oh my goodness! Like, watch this singular microscopic organism refute Ed. No, <laughs> That's right. Destroy facts and logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So per se chains hit hit us up here. Yeah. Okay. So in my paper, uh, I have this long and and this section originally was. This, I kind of threw it in there in, in the paper. I, I didn't really originally like care too much about this section, but like a reviewer like honed in on it and they're like, they were like objecting to it. And I'm like, uh, so like I, I, I could either delete it or I could, you know, spell it out further. And so I just decided to spell it out further. Um, so I wasn't particularly wedded to this section, but it ended up turning into like a monster mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just cause it's so technical. Uh, and I talk about like net causal factors and, and vector like causality and, Oh, oh my goodness. Um, so so here, here's the rough sketch of, of what I want to say in that chapter. So Phaser's, he's demanding a per se cause, some kind of most fundamental cause of non-fundamental changeable things, say. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's trying to demand that. And I want to say, well, what are the conditions under which we can legitimately demand a per se sustaining cause? Well, I developed uh, like a metaphysical account of, of per se chains in my paper, uh, on which a necessary condition for a, for the need for a per se sustaining cause of something, uh, and this something could be an object, it could be a, a property that an object has, it could be a state that the object finds itself in or whatever. Um, what I say is a necessary condition of that would be something like there is perhaps like a net causal factor. So it's like a net force, right? So a net force is just um, like if I'm pushing this this way, there's a net force acting on it. And you can represent these with like a vector diagram. So that has a kind of magnitude. So it's like how strong it is. So I could push it like faster or like slower. <laughs> and then it's also got a direction. Um, so a lot, lots of philosophers think that causality, you can also represent it like that. Um, uh, you know, because they're kind of causal. There are like, there's an almost infinity of causal factors impinging on me right now. And they're all like, they're all pushing me in different ways. And, and yeah. And they're all contributing to different outcomes. And the, the, the net of those has a kind of overall vector-like causality. And so I take this notion of a vector-like causality, and I essentially say, well, I think it's plausible that one necessary condition for the requirement of a Paris A chain is that there is a kind of net causal factor acting on the thing, which needs to be counteracted by the Paris A cause. Yeah. That, that's sustaining the thing in question. And like, if you look at Phaser's examples, I think, I think this is like really plausible, right? So Phaser's examples of Perisay chains, it's like the cup being held aloft by the table, being held aloft by the foundations, being held aloft by the earth. Now, the thing is, I want to say, well, what's the reason? Like, why? What's the ultimate explanation? What's the philosophical reason why the cup 
why it's being three meters in the air or three feet in the air, say, why does that need a sustaining cause? Well, it seems to me that the reason is because absent the table or absent some sustaining cause, uh, it, it wouldn't be three feet in the air because it has a net causal factor that's inclining it downward and, and pulling, it, <laughs> pulling it to the ground. Yeah. And that's precisely why if it is to remain three feet in the air, that's precisely why it would need something undergirding it or holding it up that way. Yeah. And, and I think that this applies to lots of other examples of parasite chains as well. And so I go on to argue that, uh, well, this seems to be at least a rationally defensible view of parasite chains, uh, that, uh, you know, one necessary condition for the requirement of a parasite sustaining cause uh, is indeed there has to be this kind of net causal factor, which is counteracted by that cause. And in the absence of that cause would elicit a different outcome, right? So like in the absence of the table, uh, my, my cup wouldn't be three feet in the air. It'd be yeah. plunging down. Well, so, real yeah. quick. So, so for those who are, are totally mind blown right now, so the net causal factor, if I'm getting this right, you, you mentioned yourself and I like thinking about you here. So, so you have all these uh, factors going on. You have like, uh, you know, you're being held together. You have uh, hydrogen bonds that are going on, like holding you together. You have other forces. You have gravity, and um, so the the net causal factor for you, you could, if you were going to draw it, it'd be an arrow down right now on top of you, because well, gravity's like pushing you, not pulling, I guess. Right? Yeah. Well, there's also the normal force that's acting back up, so it might cancel that out as well. Because I'm not accelerating downwards, right? So the normal force is equally counteracting that gravity. Right. Right. So that that's one of the point I wanted to make that uh, that normal force is keeping you sitting right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like yeah. the, that's like the counteracting. Yeah. And if there wasn't a table there or a bench, whatever you're sitting on, then you would be on the ground right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly oh exactly that's a, that's a good one that's a good so i think that's a that's a like a good application of it and so w- what i want to say is like okay so it seems plausible to me that uh that's a, a requirement of or that that's at least a necessary condition of when uh some kind of some object or some state or some property would need a parasite sustaining cause it seems to me that there would have to be this this causal factor which in the absence of the sustainer uh, would be a net causal factor that's inclining me toward the opposite outcome. So like uh, falling to the ground, say. Uh, so then um, I just argue that Phaser hasn't justified why this necessary condition has been met. He hasn't given us any reason to think that uh, like there is something that's trying to pull objects out of existence, say. So th- it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about like things will just maintain their state of, of stasis. But uh, I want to kind of find a metaphysical undergirding of that. Um, and so uh, there isn't something that's like, if Phaser hasn't justified, he hasn't given us a reason to think that there there is something that is like actively trying to pull us out of existence. There's like something. There isn't some net causal factor that's it's you know taking us out of existence in the absence of say God sustaining us or something like that. And so, provided that he hasn't justified that, and provided that that's a necessary condition for requiring a per se cause, well, then we just use a kind of epistemic modus tollens <laughs> to say that, uh, uh, well, then he actually hasn't, after all, justified why we need a per se sustaining cause here in this dialectical context. Now, remember, you can have other methods of justification like the Bible or whatever, um, but in this dialectical context of the Aristotelian proof. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it requires that inference, right? Because I moved from a justificatory claim to. Um, uh, another justificatory claim by means of a metaphysical claim. So, like, here, here's how it is, right? Uh, it would be premise one, a, a per se cause would be needed uh, only if there is this kind of net causal force that's inclining the thing toward another outcome. Mm-hmm. But 
Phaser hasn't given us good reason to think that there is such a net causal factor inclining us to that outcome. And hence, he hasn't given us good reason to think that there, there needs to be a parasitic cause. So that sounds like modus tollens, but technically speaking, it isn't because I went from a metaphysical claim to an epistemic claim in the second one. So all we need to add is, is a rule of inference, which is like an epistemic modus tollens. So um, if we know that P entails Q and... Um, uh, we know that not P, or we're in a good, you know, we have, we're justified in thinking that not P, well, then we are ipso facto, at least in a position to be justified in thinking uh, not Q. I, I don't know if I, okay, P entails Q, mm -hmm. we know that, and we know not Q, say, or we're at least in, in a good position to be justified in not Q, and hence, mm -hmm. we're in a position to be justified in not P. It's called, it's like an epistemic closure principle, it's yeah. used in philosophy a lot, it's quite plausible, so I <laughs> I think I can make use of it in this I, I thought you said it the wrong way at first, it was freaking me out, I thought you said not P, and I was like, well, that's yeah, not more I, Yeah, every, you know, you could just disregard what I said, I, pro <laughs> I, I, I probably said it wrong, because... Uh, uh, it's starting to get a wee bit cold out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been going for a little bit too. Um, I, I was trying to think while you're talking, man. I was trying to think of, a, of something to call that uh, that principle that that Phaser uh, just intuitively intuitively has, like existential decay or existential. Yeah, I, I, I call it ex existential expiration. Um, expiration. Okay. It, yeah, I call that in my one of my other papers and some other of my stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that he hasn't brought up. He hasn't justified. Do you think that's because just intuitively he thinks that we should believe in in that principle uh, just intuitively? I'm, we're getting into psychology here, but <laughs> no, that's a good question. So I I don't. I'm guessing the reason he believes it is. Oh, I think they it, it depends, right? He might he has this whole metaphysical framework and his other arguments, and they're right. all kind of like mutually. They all are almost in some sense mutually interdependent because sometimes. Uh, when you object to one of his arguments, he sometimes actually adduces stuff that's in the other argument. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. That makes them parasitic on one another. That makes them, that makes them, it, it, that doesn't make them, it, they have dude, to be independent. That, it's not five proofs then. It'd right. be less. And that's uh, funny it, because that's kind of, it, it goes back to the contingency thing. So it, it'd be like uh, the, the IOUs, right? And there's yeah, no, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If they're all yeah. interdependent like that. Yeah. So I'm again. I'm not for the audience. I'm not claiming that all of them are interdependent. I'm just saying no, right, that right. sometimes in his book, when when you bring up an objection, he'll cite something else. So for instance, in his Aristotelian proof paper, uh, or chapter, uh, he has a footnote where he's like, uh, "Well, uh, he, a different way you could justify this particular claim is by appeal to hylomorphism." But I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm, I haven't cast things in terms of hylomorphism because that's controversial and it's not essential to my argument, uh, my Aristotelian proof. But then when he's when he considers objections later on to his Aristotelian proof, like existential inertia. He has to appeal to hylomorphism and other yeah. sorts of things. And, and I know that's not one proof depending upon another, but if you go to other cases, uh, there, there are some cases of that. I'm not saying that it's all of them. And, and those objections might fail for other reasons and, yeah. and whatnot. But uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. My, no, my it's main, good. It's yeah, good. My, and, and just just for his sake, I could understand wanting to inter, interlock them so you have this like phalanx that you're uh, you know, yeah. you know, presenting against someone. I, I get that as well, but I understand your point too, where it's like we're considering one. Don't try and drag me into another right now. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, again, I was just trying to answer your question. Like, right, why right. does he think that? Uh, totally. Why does he think this existential expiration? And part of me thinks that it might be a kind of package deal of his whole worldview that all these arguments seem to be demanding that kind of sustaining cause, and they're all going at it from different ways like essence existence and and composition mm -hmm. and other sorts of things so it's almost like a package almost that that okay. he's justifying i mean another reason might just be a kind of explicability requirement so like what explains why it exists at any given moment and it seems to me that he thinks that um the only explanation you could have is in terms of some more fundamental sustaining cause now i i contest that i think that there could be other explanations um but 
I think maybe explicability is something that's that's uh, motivating him, and that's a perfectly good motivation in general, right? Sure. All philosophers appeal to explicability in their work, and that's like it's a good way to justify things. Like, uh, if this weren't the case, well, then something would be inexplicable, and you know, we reject that because things generally have explanations and and so on. So. Um, yeah, that's just a long-winded way of saying that I think it, it firstly, it's probably a package deal, but secondly, it probably justifies it by appeal to explicability. And then finally, again, just for the audience, I'm not trying to allege that, that Phaser does indeed have his, all of his arguments are parasitic or anything. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that on occasion, on some occasions in his book, when he's replying to a specific objection, say, or what have you, uh, he, he, he makes appeal to something else in another proof or what have you. Yeah. And to me, that, that seems as though on those occasions that that makes the relevant argument in question not independent so yeah and that's a good point too and uh again for those uh listeners who are unacquainted with uh philosophy and how it works you could totally like someone and want to shred their arguments to bits you know you could respect yeah. them and actually part of respecting someone is taking the time to go at their argument that's like a big a big that's deal which is so weird yeah. when i that's learned respect one another exactly yeah. when i when i when i started studying philosophy and people go man thank you for considering this and i'm like well, what's going on is this is this underhanded and i realized no you worked really hard on something and someone found it so valuable uh or so interesting so worth uh, interacting with that they read it enough you have to read a couple times and then to to respond to it and really if you didn't respect them you wouldn't do that just whatever dude i don't care about him i'm not reading his stuff yeah, well, and oh my goodness, his he is such a great writer, Phaser, that is. Oh my goodness, it's so clear. I love it. Um, I've had people, so like, um, I don't know, when I was like, you know, in high school and I was, you know, learning to write better and, and so on, like I was reading a lot of Phaser um, just because I was interested in this sort of stuff and I was developing some of my thoughts and other, other sorts of things as I read, was reading Phaser. And um, I, th- I think I tried to like emulate some of his, because he's so clear in his writing. It's like insane. And so uh, I think I tried to emulate some of that. And I've actually had some people who've read my book. They have some people, some, not not everyone, I'm, I'm, but they've been like, some of your writing, Joe, sometimes reminds me of phasers. And I'm like, ah, oh. <laughs> that, like, that like makes my heart, you know, because I'm just like, yes, I want to emulate phasers writing. Mm-hmm. It's just great. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so Joe, real quick, because I did, I did bring it up, and people are going to be confused if we don't talk about it. But the the moon thing, right? So, to to yeah, me, it, it seems like no, 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 dude, it's fine. I've been uh, taking this off. It seems like the moon. Uh, someone would say, well, the moon is being illuminated, and it's going from the potential to be illuminated to to being illuminated to to showing off uh, its its splendor. Actually, you know, borrowed splendor from the sun. And I think your answer is kind of that argument right there. It's just photons bouncing off. Um, can you can you explain your reasoning there? Yeah. So this is a reviewer. Um, they thought they thought that my um, my account of what my account of one necessary condition for per se chains that we were just talking about um, with like the net factors and whatnot. Interesting. And they had an, they had an objection, and they were like, "Well, your account doesn't seem to take into account uh, all the relevant." cases of per se chains uh so sometimes people cite illumination as a case and he was like well there, this doesn't seem to be a case of there being like a net causal factor that's like inclining something towards another condition um that needs to be like counteracted uh instead it's just like the moon borrowing its light from the sun there doesn't seem to be like a net causal factor uh and so this would be a if if successful that would be a counterexample to to my account okay um and so I give uh, three responses to that. Um, I'm just looking, because this gets real technical. I'm just looking at the paper right now. So, oh yeah, okay. So the first thing I said, it's like, it's just not clear to me that that's a per se chain, right? So like, we have to ask, 
we used to ask about the moon's present illumination. Like, what is, like, like, what's the cause here? What's the cause? It's not the sun, because you can remove the sun, and the moon will be illuminated for like eight minutes. Still. Eight minutes, yeah. yeah. Sure. So it, it's not the sun. Uh, in, a par- in, a, in a parasite chain, w- once you remove the first member, the whole thing collapses, because the other members are causes only insofar as they wholly derive their causality from that first member. So it's not the sun. Uh, well, is it the photons that are like next to the sun? Well, no, because those would be like seven minutes until they reach, reach the moon. Well, what about the ones that are six minutes? No. Five minutes? No. Like, so, like, so like it can't be any of the photons that are in between the sun and the moon. Um, but similarly, it can't be any of the photons that are in between the, the moon and, and Earth because those like already bounced off the moon. Those have already illuminated it. And so they aren't relevant to the, the causal feature, namely the moon's present illumination that we're considering. And so, well, then what is the cause? Well, it seems to me that the only the only candidate here is like the set of all those photons that are currently bouncing off the moon. Like they're either hitting the moon right now or maybe like something. It seems to me that that is the only candidate for the cause. But then, then it seems to me that wasn't that the very thing that we were trying to say was the, the, like, the effect, namely the moon's illumination, like uh, it's being lit? Like it's being lit consists in the photons, like all of them just like presently bouncing on it right now. And so like, how could that be the, the, the cause if that's just what this relevant causal feature that we're trying to explain just consists in? Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it seems to me that we, in this case, we have just said that um, we're trying to, we're trying to locate the illumination within a parasite chain, but like the only candidate, the only candidate cause would be the, the, the photons that are presently striking the moon, but that's just what illumination consists in. So it's like, it, it just seems to me that this isn't really a causal chain. Um, yeah, I, I don't quite know how to, how to even categorize it. As in my paper, I just said, this is just a single event. It's just the single event of the photons striking the moon, say. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me to be like the, the kind of chain of like IOUs, say, like, um, or, or, or the case of the, the cups being held aloft by the table, being held aloft by another thing, being held aloft by another thing. Like in that case, we've got like multiple things say maybe, or multiple events that are subordinated. Um, uh, but in, in the case of the illumination, it's like, we just have this one event and the one event is the photons bouncing off the moon. Like that, that's what the illumination consists in. Uh, what's the cause? I'm not saying that that's an uncaused event, right? The causes are the velocities of the photons and whatnot, uh, and their trajectories and, and, and so on and, and so on. But, um, yeah, so that, that's my first response to it. It just doesn't seem to me to even be a parasite chain, but I, I then go on to give two, two other responses because, you know, some people will think, well, it is a per se chain. Um, so I'll just quickly go over these. So uh, the second one is like, even if it is a per se chain, I think my account might actually be able to capture it. Um, because we, the vector like causal or explanatory factors could be uh, the nature of reflective surfaces, uh, which are such that upon being exposed to such photons, they, they reflect them. And secondly, uh, the absence of light in the ambient environment, right? So like that's the net causal factor. When there's the absence of light, it won't be illuminated. So the absence of light plus the nature of reflective surfaces provides an explanation, which is like a vector towards the definite outcome of not being illuminated. And then that is being counteracted by that, that, that definite outcome has a counteracting causal factor. And that counteracting causal factor is going to be the light, say. Um, And so, yeah, uh, it just seems to me that my account would be able to to capture that. Now, this is all, it's a little complicated and I, you know, I'd have to spell it out 
further in, in the paper itself. And then the third thing that I said is like, okay, suppose that firstly, it is a per se chain. And secondly, my account actually fails for it. Even then, it seems to me that um, uh, we have an undercutting defeater for the Aristotelian proof, because what reason does Phaser have to think that the actual existence of the water, say, is more relevantly like the case of illumination than the cases that my account does capture, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so the onus is on Phaser to give us reason to think that uh, it's more like the case of illumination than it is like the, the cases that my account does capture. Yeah. Uh, but, but he hasn't done that, right? And so uh, even if my account fails to capture these sorts of things, it seems to me that it nevertheless provides an undercutting defeater. Which is all I was aiming to do in the first place. Yeah, that's pretty nasty, man. That's pretty devastating. I, I really like that. And that's, that's a, it is technical, but that's why I wanted to bring it up, especially because it made me think a lot just about the moon. Every time I see the moon now, I'm going to be thinking about that because it's, it's really fascinating to think about that. And the sun isn't responsible for the sun is not the, the ground of the photons, which are illuminating, though it's like a pair of accidents chain or something like it, it came yeah, I, from the sun. Right. But it's not. No. I don't even know how to carry it. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I probably could have could have done this, like fleshed it out further in the paper, but I was yeah. just like, I don't know how to characterize it. It just seems like a single event. It's the photons is bouncing off the moon. And it's yeah. like the cause, the cause of that, again, I'm not saying it's like uncaused for the audience. I'm not right. saying it's uncaused. Like the cause would be presumably like the velocities and trajectories of those photons, like right before they bounced off mm -hmm. of it or whatever, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah anyway <laughs> well and it's it's an interesting point for me too because I, it's just fun to talk about to see how philosophy interacts with our everyday experiences you know the right. phenomena that we see like the moon and you're just thinking about this and you're using it as a counter example for a different argument but it's just fun to think about like this world is crazy everything that happens, like you could it's nuts we're talking about cups and stuff <laughs> yeah exactly man you get it yeah so i just wanted to, to further motivate uh studying philosophy and, and theology for the for the folks at home everything is crazy um it's all nuts you could think about a cup for the rest of your life um, yeah. which is sweet i like that yeah. and and i guess one one final thing is just like um you know i i have learned from my experience in in studying philosophy that uh there are so many ways that reason reveals things to people and so i don't want to say that like um, you know, I have the last word on the Aristotelian proof or I've like decisively refuted it or anything. It's like, I'm open to there being further reasons and further things that are, um, you know, that are counteracting my own critiques of the Aristotelian proof. And, you know, maybe there are further reasons for that and so on, but I want to leave open that, that, uh, the epistemic humility and, and recognize that reason reveals things to people at different stages of their lives and different things. So I'm not saying that anyone who accepts the Aristotelian proof is, is irrational or anything like that. Um, but uh, at least by my lights and, and from what I've studied and from what I've looked into and from what I've just published on, uh, it does seem to me that there are some, some problems for it. But I think that argument evaluation is person dependent. It depends on our priors, our experiences, our testimonial evidence, the books we've read, the papers we've read, the videos we've watched, people we've encountered and so on. And so by my lights, for my position on the epistemic landscape, I don't think that the argument succeeds. And mm -hmm. I think other people can be justified in, in saying that as well, uh, that it doesn't succeed. Um, but perhaps from other positions on the epistemic landscape, they might have access to other other unique sources of justification to which I don't have access, like personal experience and other sorts of things. So, Right, right totally. That's great, man. That's a great point. Um, thanks, for, thanks for ending on that. Uh, Joe, I, I'm hesitant to ask this, and we can cut it if you want, but uh, so as an, as an agnostic, um, what would 
What would you think it would take for you to cross the line over into theism or Christian theism? Would would it be another argument for you since you're a, a reason in, inclined person? Would it be a personal experience? You know, so I believe in God. I think he knows what it would take. But for you, just experientially, like, have you thought about what, what it would take, what, what kind of evidence it would be? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that, well, I think that there are different ways to be acquainted with something. So, right. um, like, what I, what I like to say is, like, um, I think that, like, if God exists, then I'm already in a relationship with God, right? I mean, you're, we're probing the fundamental nature of reality. Uh, we're swimming in the depths of reason. Um, and I think that if God exists, that's like swimming in the depths of God, really, and, and drawing, drawing closer to him in virtue of doing philosophy and in virtue of loving truth, in virtue of cultivating intellectual and moral virtue and whatnot. Um, and so there's a sense in which I want to I wanna just say, like, well, if that is indeed true, well, then I'm already trying to cultivate a, a relationship there um, and other sorts of things. Uh, but as for, like, the more explicit kind of doxastic affirmation, um, which I don't think that's, I mean, I, I just don't think that's as valuable as genuinely trying to cultivate these moral and intellectual virtues, genuinely trying to love, love others, uh, genuinely, you know, the, trying to seek truth with all your might, really, uh, and serving others in, the, in, in doing so, um, like, like what you're doing on your podcast and other sorts of things, right? So um, I think that that's more important. But when it comes to the explicit doxastic side of things, um, like the belief related, like what I propositionally affirm, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I do think that that would perhaps, uh, I mean, it, it could take either lessening the strength of the arguments that I do take there to be uh, on the, the side of the naturalist. So you, that, that could be one way. Another way could be adding perhaps more arguments on this side. It could be strengthening the arguments on this side for theism. Uh, uh, it could be weakening the arguments on the naturalistic side. Um, uh, just, a, uh, I think there are different avenues, uh, different ways. So ex- perhaps like altering my probability assessment some, yeah. some way or another through perhaps another argument, but I'm guessing it would be seeing an, a, an old argument in new lights, really. That's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting, man. Uh, that's cool. I'm glad you didn't say like him writing your name on the moon or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but no, that, that, that's really like, good. Think- that's like, when I think about that, I mean, I'm just like, I mean, most, I feel like, I feel like I would almost be like, I must be hallucinating or something, you know, like, I like know. Right. I, I want, I want like, I want it to be, I want, I want to own it. Right. I don't want God to like force it on me. Like mm. I want to, I want to be the one who's like growing in this, in this right. relationship, growing in my spiritual life or whatever, like to be the one who's discovering the argument or coming across it and, uh, and, you know, wrestling with it and so on. It's like, that is a much more valuable way to do it than like, Oh, you know, I just happened to look at the moon and it was <laughs> written on there. Like, come on, that's like cheating, you know, yeah. like where's the adventure in that? Um, that's a yeah. great. That's a great point, and it, it fits with uh, with what I've been working on with a, an a authorial analogy for the God world relation. Like that would be uh, a bad author. That would be Deus ex machina. Yeah. Not yeah. it wouldn't fit with your historical conditions uh, uh, for for free will or moral responsibility. Wouldn't fit with your you know. Your, it wouldn't fit. It 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 doesn't. He could, and he like I I believe the Bible, so I believe he did do, you know, writing on the wall kind of stuff, yeah. but. That wasn't Joe. Believe in me, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. God, I'm. I was here, God. Right? Yeah. Um, and I, I would. I would think that I'm like. There must be some. Like, I'm <laughs> listening. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I try to. You know, I don't know. It's like if I have all these arguments on both sides, it's like some experience. Like, I sometimes I do contemplate this. I'm like, 
maybe there is some reason why uh like i don't like have any experiences like like mm. genuine like religious ex- like maybe like god knows my dispositions and he knows that if i were to be exposed to like some kind of just like really uh, like in-depth experience or like yeah. like emotional or other sorts of things he know he god knows that i would just write that off and like that's just my you know that's just you know, I don't know. It's just the effects of psychological and other sorts of things that I would be like, God knows exactly. that I would, I'm responsive to arguments and other sorts of things. Yeah. And so that's the means by which if God exists, he would try to reach me, it seems to me. Yeah. And so I'm like, not surprised like that, uh, that I don't have any of these sorts of religious experiences or other sorts of things. I'm like, I think God knows that like, if I did that to Joe, he'd just write it off. So like, I need to find him in another yeah. way. Yeah. Well, and, and again, man, that, that goes back to kind of the worldview analysis and you're going to in- interpret that data that's presented to you based on your your prior probabilities based on your presuppositions based on exactly what you're saying and your intuitions and what you value and and your dispositions like i don't know it's your whole person right yeah, it's, it's it really you is are. It's, that's yeah. why i find i see epistemology as just extremely unique right and i just it, it's so unique to each individual what justifies them their priors mm. like their dispositions like like again, I'm not saying that that kind of like religious experience and those other sorts of things can't justify someone. I think that like given their constitution, like that could be a perfect way that God say could reveal Himself to yeah. them. And like given my constitution, uh, God knows that that's not the way to reach me. Uh, right, so. right. And you may not be justified too. The same evidence might be justified for one person and not another based on their their causal history there. Exactly. Yeah. So the same sorts of things. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank, thanks for answering that question, man. That was uh, this has been really fun. I really appreciate you coming on and talking. I'm surprised that that you were even younger. I didn't want to bring that up because I don't think age should have to go into it, you know. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting to to note that. Um, yeah, age, age is unfortunate. Um, but oh well, you know, we're yeah. all we're all getting we're all getting closer to death. That's right. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. Thanks for leaving uh, the listeners on that yeah, positive note. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Joe, how can people, uh, how can people find you interact with your stuff? So um, I have a telegram. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so uh, let's see YouTube. Um, I, I'm at majesty of reason. You can mm-hmm. check that out. Um, I, I got some lit philosophers on there like Rob Coons, Josh yeah. Rathson, uh, Graham Oppie, all sorts of people. Um, so really fun stuff on, on the YouTubes. Uh, uh, let's see my, you, my book, you know, it's on yeah. Amazon. Uh, majesty of reason um yes Boom. there it is again <laughs> and then, i mean uh, occasionally i when i get uh triggered enough i write blog posts uh so uh that's on majesty of and then awesome. um i'm most active on facebook so that's like just you could find me at joe schmidt and i'm i yeah awesome well sweet dude thanks so much for coming on this has been really fun uh i'd love to have you on again talk some more of your craziness uh that'd be really fun uh but uh that's going to have to do it for now, folks. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.